Hey, tennis fans, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. We have Davis Cup Finals action to discuss with Canada advancing. Uh, But before we get to that uh, and a handful of other Canadian players in action, uh, big news, obviously, this week is the announcement, Mike, of Roger Federer's pending retirement uh, following the Labour Cup. It caught me off guard, to be honest with you. And uh, I think it's kind of funny that it catches anyone off guard when we're talking about a 41-year-old who's clearly, you know, even before the retirement announcement, we knew this was coming at some point. But he's played so little the last two years, and you just felt like, oh, there had to be a way for him to come back for one last. And when I say hurrah, I don't mean like a Grand Slam victory, but at least going out healthy on his own terms, being able to sort of say goodbye in whatever way he would ideally like to have happen and this obviously brings to a close almost because we've got the labor cup you know the illustrious career of one of the all-time greats of the sport and uh it did still somehow like i said catch me uh unsuspecting and off guard yeah and it, i i suppose it feels almost fitting in a way that for me we have two of the most global superstars in tennis history retiring just a, a few weeks apart with Roger Federer uh, now saying he's leaving the game and of course saying goodbye to Serena Williams as she gave one last hurrah at the US Open also fitting they're only about a month or so apart in age so they're kind of retiring at a very similar time but you know when Roger Federer I get asked about Roger Federer uh if he's the greatest or not. And certainly that is up for discussion, but I've always felt Roger Federer without question is the most popular global men's tennis player of all time. Yeah, absolutely. You can go almost anywhere in the world and mention the name Roger Federer and someone is going to say tennis, you know, even Mm -hmm. someone who's not necessarily a fan. And there's only a handful of people that you can do that with. I would say Serena Williams is also one of them. And not to debate the the GOAT topic, him, Nadal, Djokovic, all incredible players, all accomplished huge heights for the sport, brought it to new heights. But what Roger did in my mind is he came along first and really transitioned that, that era where people were wondering who's going to take the torch in tennis here from Sampras, Agassi. You know, Leighton Hewitt had a couple of slams there, but wasn't consolidating it in the way that we've seen these three do. So Roger really ushered in that next great era and push tennis to new places where it hasn't been before. Look at all the charity matches he's played in Africa, in South America, in Mexico. Um, Rogers brought the game places that it otherwise I don't think ever would have got to at that level. Yeah, very, very well said. And uh, I know you think the same, like, Pete Sampras when he set number 14 that was like the gold standard that we really didn't think someone else could come along and break that record and the fact that I mean it was such a big deal when Roger Federer was the first to do it and I still never would have imagined we'd have three players surpass the number 14 and surpass it by like a pretty substantial amount like it's unbelievable to think uh, three players uh, in this era of of men's tennis have accomplished this much winning you know 63 grand slams uh, 
between them in singles. It's it's just staggering. And Roger Federer still holds uh, these numerous records and accolades, which I'm sure will last uh, for a very long time, if not hold up forever. I, I think those uh, consecutive weeks at, at world number one certainly will hold weight as, as staying there. That's just an incredible 237 weeks in a row is, is staggering. And uh, the eight men's singles titles at Wimbledon, which is just an incredible feat breaking Pete Sampras's uh, record of seven. Now Novak Djokovic is getting in the conversation there at Wimbledon too. So much to dissect and, and take away from this. And obviously this will be the focus of this episode, episode 30 for us this year. And who better to have along to help us look at Roger Federer's great career than the illustrious tennis journalist, Christopher Clary, who's written a recent book on Roger Federer. He's been on many times to talk to us, not just about Fed, but many things in the tennis world. And uh, he was the first one I thought of, and I believe you as well, when it came to uh, wrapping up Roger's effect on the tennis world. Yeah, perfect person to speak about this. Here's our interview with Christopher Clary of the New York Times. Our guest this week is a good friend of the podcast and one of the most respected voices in our sport. He's the tennis correspondent for the New York Times and has written a recent best-selling book on Roger Federer called The Master. It's really perfect time to welcome Christopher Clary back to Matchpoint Canada. Thanks so much for uh, joining us again. Hey, it's great to see you both. Yeah, it's nice to uh, get a chance to talk some tennis with you again. We love having you on the pod at the best of times, obviously, Chris. But uh, when Roger made his announcement, Ben and I couldn't think of someone better to have on to discuss the impact uh, this decision is going to have on himself and the game. Uh, Your book is called The Master, but the long title is The Long Run and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer. And now that long run's come to an end. What was your reaction when you heard that he made it official? Well, he does have that one last uh, hurrah at the Lever Cup coming up in London. So Mm -hmm. that'll be one more chance. I'm not sure if he'll play doubles or singles or what he'll do, but there'll be one more chance to watch him in action. Um, My my reaction was, uh, honestly, I, I kind of... When I was talking about about the book when it came out a year ago, people kept asking, what's the future? At that time, I thought he wouldn't play again. I honestly didn't think he'd play again. I felt the knee surgery, from what I heard, was a pretty serious one. Some problems with arthritis. The doctors that I spoke with said, you know, it's tough at any age to come back from that. But in the stage that Roger was in, it was a you know, pretty iffy thing. So I felt pretty pessimistic. But I was, again, encouraged when I heard from his team and from himself. Roger's not somebody who puts things out in the public domain unless he's serious about it. So his plan of playing Labor Cup followed by Basel on the ATP Tour, you know, as an individual event uh, was, a, to me, a sign that he was serious about playing again in 2023. And that's all that I heard. I think the knee just uh, wouldn't cooperate. Ultimately, that was the main thing that happened. And and it changed his plans and maybe uh, seeing what the new generation is doing as well. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> the U.S. Open was an interesting window into what the future of our sport's going to look like. And uh it's fast and it's powerful and it's pretty impactful. So I'm not sure that's what changed any minds, but I did. I think clearly that Roger's decision, he had a long, long look at it. This was not his first long break. He had another one, obviously uh, going back to 2020 when he had the pandemic plus more knee operation. So he, he's had two long, almost a year or more breaks from tennis to see what life is like without it. And tennis has seen what it's like without him. So in a lot of ways, the transition's already been made. But for sure, it's a symbolic moment and, and one you want to do justice to, for sure. I feel like the U.S. Open made me feel actually kind of confident about what the future is going to bring to men's tennis after these three greats do hang up uh, all of their rackets. You've gotten to know Roger so well over the years with your many one-on-one interviews. 
Um, what do you think? If he had been able to give it one last go and return to competition, what, what do you think his ultimate goal would have been? And do you think having things end this way is going to be difficult for him to accept on any level? I mean, it's become sort of a mantra for athletes. You want to leave on your own terms. You know, I don't, that can mean a lot of different things. I, I think I don't think in his mind's eye what he wanted to do was go out feeling not great, losing a straight set, six love in the final set at Wimbledon to Hubert Hurtcatch, who's obviously a very good player. But that's not the right way Roger envisioned it, I'm sure, and not the way he wanted to feel when he was out there the last time. And I don't think it was the kind of farewell moment he wanted to have with the public either at a place that's so iconic and meaningful to him. So I imagine there's been some of that. I know part of the the last year has been about trying to get himself just generally healthy, not just for tennis, but to live his life going forward. He's in a, you know, he's 40, 41 years old now, and he's got four kids and all kinds of plans for the future. I know he wants to play a lot of exhibition tennis and, you know, carry the caravan around the world as I'm sure he could and will, but to do that, you got to be able to move. So the knee thing was serious and had to find a way to try to resolve it. So I think that was motivational. You know, the gravy would have been able to play, you know, more uh, on tour not going to happen as it turns out. Is it surprising? Ultimately, no. But I, I just feel like, you know, the end game for him, he's already surpassed expectations so much just getting to the stage of tennis that he did. And ultimately, if you look back, 2019, the Wimbledon final that he was two match points, you know, against Djokovic with, which every Federer fan will wince at forevermore when they hear that 2019 Wimbledon final phrase. But just amazing to be in that position, really. He almost was his own enemy there because it was so incredible what he did that not making it across the finish line feels like a big downer. But in fact, it should be also an upper that he got that high and that far that stage in his career. Yeah, it's it, well, it's nice to, you know, reflect on some of these incredible matches. Of course, Roger Federer, not not only his greatness, but you feel like he's been a, a part of some of the most historic matches in our sport. I, I know for me, there's a, a few that come to my mind when I think of Roger. Which matches maybe come to your mind when, when you think of Federer and uh, his lengthy career? You know, it's funny. I mean, they're obviously the ones everybody thinks about, um, you know, the main matches at Wimbledon with Nadal and, and the great Djokovic duels. You know, I go back for me, it's a mixture of defeats and victories, to be honest. I think some of the couple of matches that kind of got lost in the sands of time were the Safin semifinal in Australia in, um, in 2005, uh, when he was had won three majors the year before had put his clamps on number one was clearly the best player in the world. And Safin was, a guy who could have been, you know, a dominant player. He had the skills for it and the swagger for it. Just didn't have the head for it or the staying power for it. But he was revived at that point with Lundgren, Federer's former coach, working with him. And that, to me, of all the matches I've seen live, and I've seen so many, just like you guys probably, that one really sticks in my memory because of the intensity of it. Roger was not 100% physically, just the shot making. It was just a couple of guys from... It was like Thor against Thor, just throwing thunderbolts at each other. And it was just fantastic theater and a fabulous match. And Safin ended up winning it. Roger had a match point, hit a tweener on it, lost the match point on a volley winner after the tweener from Safin. And Roger could have hit that shot a bunch of different ways. But that match for sure is one that's in my personal memory is just a fantastic moment because Roger seemed to be on the way there. And then suddenly somebody rose up to his level, couldn't sustain it. Roger ended up accelerating and winning three majors again the two following seasons. And the other match I remember very well is the, um, the match against Djokovic at the French Open, another semifinal. Yep. When Djokovic was riding his 40-plus winning streak, was an incredible start 2011 season, right? And, um, and Novak was playing the best tennis in the world at that time, and Roger just summoned somewhere within him the magic and played, I think, 
for me, his best match really ever on clay that I saw him play. And he stopped Novak. And the quality of that match and the quality of the ball striking very aggressive was, was a phenomenal uh, spectacle and stopped the hottest man in the sport. Um, and Roger, I think, should have won the French Open that year. For the book, I talked to Anna Cohn at length, his former coach. And that's one of Paul's regrets was that he felt that Roger had the level to beat Nadal that year in the final and just couldn't quite summon the belief and energy to do it. But the, the shots were there at that point. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I, I remember that semifinal, the uh, the finger wag right after right after that big win in the semifinals. Uh, certainly I, iconic. Uh, before losing that final, uh, just just covering Roger Federer, the the man, the you know beyond all, all the titles and accolades uh, for your book over these years. What do you take from him? I, I guess the person, um, based just just through all your interactions. What, what do you think of him uh, as as a person, really? Well, if I think about Roger, I think about evolution, first of all, because he, you know, as, as you all can see, he was around long enough for us to get a lot of looks at him. He's a, like some rock icon that you can see from the early years of the rock to the middle age part of the rock all the way through. And, and him, it was similar, but he really, he always had a humanity about him and an empathy about him. He was rough around the edges, but he really, I think, grew into his role. And I think he grew into what he could feel people wanted him to be and what he knew he needed to be to succeed. And that was it was great to see that up close kind of year by year, kind of like a time-lapse photography to watch him year by year change through that. And I think ultimately when you see a guy in so many situations over the years, so many different continents after so many matches conduct himself with grace and respect for those around him, um, be they journalists, be they sponsors, be the other players. Ultimately it's the whole body of work. that's really impressive. And that's the case with Roger. I think over time, he was somebody who managed, uh, I think we might have discussed part of this before when we talked a year ago was just uh, how he was able to take all these situations that can be frustrating or can be routine or can be drudgery and really take them with the right attitude and, and approach it with uh, positivity and a very constructive approach. And honestly, that sounds simple, but it's really hard to do for a lot of superstar athletes who are used to being catered to and, and used to having things that aren't going their way be smoothed over. Roger never seemed to impose that too much. And he was somebody who really was able in every interaction to be very present. I wrote a column for the New York times this week, actually, um, you know, about the four reasons why I felt like he had been so popular and so beloved around the world in so many different cultures, probably not everywhere, but a lot of places. And it seemed to me that it was the beauty of his game. It was the longevity that he had. People could connect with him over a long period of time and that, and that he wore well. Um, and three, that he was vulnerable in a way that a lot of male superstar athletes were not, not afraid to show his emotions, and that he also had some big defeats, as we've already discussed today, is to go with the big victories. I think that humanized him for people. But also, he was very much in the moment and very present. And I think people could really get a lot out of that and they, when they had interactions with him, either as fans or sponsors, whatever else they could feel that he was not just looking at his phone, counting the seconds till this was over. He was very much there which was sort of old school, you know, or maybe that'll be the new school as things go forward. But those are the four reasons I came up with. And ultimately the whole package makes him unique. I was reading some of your book today and I'm at the stage where you're speaking about how he can make people feel, you know, like he's got their, their whole attention and, and vice versa, which is, yeah, such a unique characteristic for a superstar of that level. By the way, I haven't finished your book, but it's only because <laughs> I, I don't much like his career. I don't want it to come to an end. So I'm kind of slow playing and enjoying it just for the record. Um, 
you release it's a, big, the book. it's a big big one anyway it, yeah it, that's right it lands hard on the on the mantelpiece yeah yeah and with young kids you know there's only so much time to sit down and sink my teeth into it so uh you released the book knowing that his career was was you know on the on the home stretch did you ever think about waiting until his retirement was there a uh, a purposeful reason to release it near the end, but not quite there yet? You know, that's a good question. Was it the ideal time? Probably not ideal. Ideal would be, you know, in a month or two from now, probably in terms of putting out a book with everything in there and complete, which is very hard to do with book publishing, as you may know. I just felt uh, after the 19 final, we talked about already the loss to Djokovic, that really his main body of work was done. I had had this amazing access thanks to Roger and, and my working for the New York Times, for sure. Um, and so I just felt like if I didn't do it, somebody else was going to do it. And it wasn't going to be, in my view, the same kind of inside look. And the opportunity in publishing is pretty narrow. You grab it when you can grab it. So I had the opportunity and I felt like there was enough there. If I constructed the narrative carefully and really focused on sort of the long view of him as opposed to the micro and get caught up too much in the stats and everything else, it was, it was a good time to do it. And I really sensed after 2020 started, the book wasn't published yet, that he wasn't going to come back. So it seemed like to me, it could be ultimately a summation of his career. You know, Renee Stouffer wrote a good book about Roger as well. Chris Bowers has written one. This one was kind of a mix of the personal and the biographical. And I felt like whatever anybody else had done, it would hold up because it had those two elements to it. Do do you plan on speaking with him again, um, either for something separate or perhaps an addition, a conclusion to the existing book, a little sort of, you know, add on just to cover this part of the, uh, the final stages of his career? I would love to. There are a lot of unanswered questions about, you know, how the last couple of years played out, um, especially the part of the season when he played in 2021, when he came back and, and played five or six events and then a pulling out of the French open uh, after winning his, uh, I think it was his third round match mm-hmm. and not playing the fourth round against Berrettini. And then obviously the tough Wimbledon. I'd love to know how much he was really hurting. He may answer some of those questions, at the Labor Cup next week coming up, he's probably going to get asked a lot of uh, detail about the time he's been away. But of course, I'd love to have a chance to talk to him again. It'll probably depend on what he wants to do. If he wants to do an autobiography, if he wants to do a documentary, depends where he where he wants to spend his energy and his his time talking about the past. But and I would always accept and be here to do an interview with Roger in any context. And there, I think there is one last chapter for sure to write about, you know, what happens uh, in London this coming week and sort of how he wraps things up. Well, we uh, briefly touched just on uh, this new generation that we certainly witnessed at the U.S. Open, Carlos Alcaraz, the ascent to world number one, seeing some of these uh, new, fantastic, highly physical, uh, great talents. But uh, you still have to wonder, Roger Federer, with this retirement, do you think it's going to leave any type of void in the game? Oh, I think it definitely leaves a void in the game just because of the connection Roger has created with his fan base over the years. And those rivalries we're not going to see again. I mean, those were the pillar of, of tennis as a sport, not just men's, women's tennis, but tennis period. Those Djokovic, Federer, and uh, Nadal, Federer rivalries. Add a little Federer-Murray in there too, if you want to. But I mean, it's been extraordinary and those are going to be gone now. So we, we know when the last Djokovic-Federer match was. We know when the last Nadal-Federer match was now. That's that's the real end of an era. And um you know, Rogers, as you made clear, is going to stay connected to tennis, involved in, I'm sure, the Labor Cup, as long as the Labor Cup will continue, involved in exhibition tours if the knee cooperates. I know he'll, I imagine he'll be playing the doll other places and other time zones, but, you know, it's a, it's a big hit not to have him as part of a, 
as a centerpiece at all these major events in tennis. And I have to say, watching Carlos Alcaraz is a great pleasure, as I'm sure you would agree. This guy's spectacular talent, but that ease of execution that Federer has, the elegance of the routine shot, the elegance of the difficult shot, um, just the general class of it all, I don't think that's replaceable. There'll be other things that'll come along that'll be exciting in different ways, but that will be very, very hard to replace. And those rivalries took 20 years to build. So we got to start building some new ones now. I'm just uh, reflecting a few years ago, chatting briefly with a uh, Canadian Philip Pelliwo. And I remember he told me every young player tries to play like Roger Federer and absolutely nobody can do it. <laughs> yeah. And I thought that was a, a good, good summation of uh, his quality of game. And uh, of course, how everybody looks up to, but nobody quite can play like him. That's what Darren Cahill told me too. And I, I believe that's true. I think it's just a, I guess, you know, you look at Rafa's technique and go, is it, can you really re replicate Rafa Nadal either? I don't know. I mean, that's pretty artisanal stuff on the forehand and just the fighting spirit and all that. But Roger, because, and he wouldn't like this. He doesn't like the idea. He makes it look easy. I don't think it's a term he really enjoys hearing because he knows how much went into creating it all and how much hard work with uh, Pierre Paganini, his fitness trainer behind the scenes and how many moments of difficulty to get there and how hard it was for him to go from age 16 to Wimbledon champion at age 21. Those five years were so tough. So he knows all that. So easy only to the naked eye, I suppose. But, you know, to be able to take the ball on the baseline as tight as he did, with the one-hander, full rip. And you could see when it didn't go right, when he was a little bit off, which would happen under extreme pressure or a day off, where the ball would go. It would go in like the fifth row, you know, the upper tier of the stands, because that tells you how much the margin was there and how much he was really pushing it. So to have the hand-eye and the skill and the footwork and the speed and the guts to just rip the ball, he hardly ever retreated. If you look at the way he played his matches, he was always tight to the baseline. So he was like a mobile Agassi with a one-hander. And ultimately, it's just extremely hard to replicate. And obviously, you see guys try to play like him a little bit in terms of how they, they squeeze the court. And um, you look at Sitsipas, probably not a bad replica in some ways in terms of how he's trying to construct his points. Doesn't retreat a whole lot either. Mm -hmm. Rogers has this ability with that one-hander as well, just to absorb pace with it. I used to just love watching the guy practice for that reason alone, just to go watch him play with the one-hander uh, in practice sessions. And you know, the ball would be up here, above his ear. The ball would be down by his calf, below his ankle. He's still making magic from those different zones of the court. So he just had an incredible feel. You know, the racket was an extension of his, of his hand, but also of his mind and spirit in some weird, crazy, you know, holistic way. And so I, I just feel like, yeah, that's just going to be so hard to – to have anybody else ever find a way to do just the same way. Well, hopefully we can see him continue doing it in some capacity. As he mentions, after the Labor Cup, that's it for ATP and the slams, but he's still going to be continuing to be involved in tennis in some way. I think you mentioned earlier that you'd expect some sort of exhibition tour, maybe a worldwide tour, maybe some more matches in, in Africa and, and places that don't typically get to see professional level tennis. Uh, if his body is still you know, able to allow him to do those things, what kind of involvement would you see him potentially doing? And uh, I mean, I can't picture him playing against any other retired players right now because I feel like he'd crush them if he was healthy enough to. But uh, what, what do you think we could expect if uh, if his body cooperates? Well, I mean, the Labor Cup, we'll see how things go. I mean, it's it's an expensive model, moving something around the, around the world every year to a new location and indoor environment for three days. 
obviously, you know, at the, at the price of the tickets, they can make it back. It's, it's a, but it's a high-end event. As long as he stays involved in that, the interest will be there at least for quite a few years. I'm sure you could use that as a platform to do other events that are around Labor Cup, maybe a women's team event like that or a mixed event. All kinds of things could be spinoffs of that if it continues to be successful. Exhibition tours like he's done before in South America uh, could easily go to other parts of the world as well. Um, we hope Canada, of course. Yeah, yeah, well, you got, you know, Canada's got the Labor Cup, right, coming your direction at some point here. And you got stuff we could do with team tennis. He's just said he's not going to do any official events anymore, which means anything that's tour or slam oriented. But if the body holds up, I mean, certainly he could play doubles as long as he wants to in some of these other events. There's other, other forums. And I know he still loves the feel of ball on string bed and loves the feel of communing with the public. And, and he's got a, a foundation that means a lot to him. And having watched it in South Africa back in 2020, January before the start of the pandemic, February, sorry, it was a you know, amazing vibe there around an Adal Federer match that was just an exhibition. So why not do that again somewhere else? I'm sure they, they've talked about trying to go to Santiago Bernabeu in Madrid when that opens up the brand new stadium for Real Madrid and, and doing something there. That was, I know, one of their long-term projects with Rafa. Maybe that'll still happen. So I think he'll be out there, body willing, but it's not the same as under pressure tennis, you know, for major titles at stake. I'll, uh, I'll finish just with one, one last one, and it might be hard for, for you to pick, but would, uh, what would you maybe identify personally, do you think is Roger Federer's biggest career accomplishment? I mean, it's just, for me, it's enduring excellence in class. It's, it's sort of a hybrid way of putting it. And um, I, I, don't, he, I think he did change the game uh, in terms of how he plays with the attacking uh, third shot off the serve in particular and the ability he had to be able to, with that plus one shot, that, that's the term we use for it now, just rule. Instead of serving and volleying, it was serve and crush forehand. And I think that's the model. You watch Carlos Alcaraz or Sinner and all these guys play in the next generation 20 years later, and that's what they're doing. But for me, it's, I think it's more the, the soft power. It's the uh, enduring excellence in class. Well, speaking about class, thank you for joining us and uh, gracing us with your class and your take on Roger's wonderful career once again. And, uh, oh, I wanted to mention before we wrap, uh, we appreciated the shout out in the book because Matchpoint Canada did get a a little reference there and uh, from one of our interviews with Jimmy Connors, just talking about how the uh, the majors held more clout today than they used to in uh, in Jimmy's day uh, back then. Yeah, I think that's an important point you all brought out from Jimmy and it's worth making. I mean, it's people, and I just have it with Serena Williams again and she retired. I have, that question comes up all the time in terms of what was the value of the time of the period? You can't judge who would have been better with a wooden racket or a graphite racket or whatever, but you can say, what were they shooting for in their era? And, you know, what Jimmy told you is very true. I mean, Jimmy missed the French Open a bunch of times, missed the Australian Open a bunch of times. Wimbledon and the U.S. Open were the coin of the realm. The Grand Slam, winning all four, was worth getting jet lag to Australia for, or boat lag in long ago. But um, I think we forget sometimes that people weren't always trying to collect as many majors as they possibly can as they are now. Yeah, well said. Well, uh, Chris, thanks so much uh, for coming on uh, the podcast and sharing your insights as always. Gentlemen, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to speak with Canadians in general, but <laughs> pleasure to speak with both of you. There you have it, Christopher Cleary of the New York Times. Uh, I mean, I asked him the question, but I suppose like, what are maybe the matches for you that stand out if you're thinking of Roger Federer, if you have any in particular, Mike? 
I mean, if I try and think a little bit off the board, but for matches that were, you know, super meaningful, you have to go back to when he beat Pete Sampras at Wimbledon in 2001 as a 19-year-old. And uh, this was shocking at the time because Pete had such a stranglehold on winning there at the All England Club. And it felt like a real transition uh, was occurring that, uh, whoa, maybe this is the guy that's going to be the next big grass court player. And uh, even though that one was only in the quarterfinals and even though Roger didn't win uh, Wimbledon that year, he would only two years later. And I think beating Sampras there really gave him the confidence to say, hey, I can beat these top guys. I can be one of these top guys. And to beat Sampras at Wimbledon is what, you know, the next generation has come to expect when you beat Federer at Wimbledon. Uh, It didn't happen too often. So that was, I think, a really meaningful match right there. Yeah, uh, definitely a great one and one that I think signified certainly his breakthrough. I I kind of look at Roger's career into three parts because I I view sort of the first part, um, sort of his complete takeover of the game after that 2003 Wimbledon title. You look at the run he was on from 2004 to 2008, and he was just like an untouchable force. (laughs) I mean, I I believe I think he won 12 of the next 18 Grand Slams in a portion there, which is just staggering. 2006, he went 92 and five. He played 17 tournaments that season made the finals in 16 of them and won 12 of them. I mean, that's just that's just absolutely ridiculous. Then sort of that second half of the career, I kind of think of a bit of a lull sort of post-2011, 2012. 2012 to 2017 without any slams, yeah. Exactly, uh, where he was close. He had his moments, made a couple finals, but that was really, of course, Djokovic's complete and utter reign over the sport. And then I think of, you know, the last era, which is the comeback 2017, which was just such a magical season for him. I mean, certainly that final with Rafael Nadal in 2017 at the Australian Open, even though like they've definitely played better matches. But I think at that time, seeing those two, because Nadal had struggled with injuries and form for a while too, just seeing them back at that stage in a Grand Slam final was extraordinary. And for Federer to, Federer to win, it was massive. He would win two slams that year. And then uh, 2019 as well was was another huge year for him. 2018 too, he uh, defended that Australian Open title. So there's a stretch there like in that comeback where you know, he was winning just as much as ever. The resurgence was very impressive. And you wonder how he went five years without winning a single slam. Obviously, credit to Djokovic, who was so Mm -hmm. strong during that time. But it was kind of mind-boggling in a way. And and people, I mean, he was starting to get all sorts of questions at tournaments about retirement and when he was going to hang up the racket. And he still had three slams in it. And boy, Wimbledon 2019, and and Chris Clary, you know, touches on this as well. But uh, he didn't win it, but he, he came so gosh darn close. And the fact that at that age, he was able to beat Nadal in the semis and come so close to beating Djokovic too, that would have gone down as one of his all-time greatest accomplishments. But at the time, it gave me, although there was disappointment from Federer fans, it gave me, as a journalist, even hope that, hey, Federer's still going to be in this conversation for a while. It looks like on a surface like that, he could still be contending for years to come. And unfortunately, the knee shortly thereafter resurfaced as an issue and and ultimately has led to his decision to have to call it a career here. 
Yeah, you look at post that final, he only managed to play four more slams, uh, missing out, of course, on uh, quite a lot of 2020 post-Australian Open. And then 2021 was a, a very abbreviated season as well, which uh, Chris Clary alluded to. Uh, but just such, such a magnificent career, such a great ambassador of the game. I, I truly do think he has changed uh, changed the game of tennis, certainly for the better. Do you, do you, I mean, clearly without a doubt, uh, he's leaving it in better hands than, than when he found it. And that's not a knock against the, the generation before him, but he's brought it to monumental heights. I was thinking also getting a little nostalgic about his Canadian moments. Mm. And there haven't been as many recently because you got to go back to, well, at least in Toronto, 2014, eight years ago was the last time he played in our city. He did play in Montreal in 2017. But uh, have you got any memorable uh, Federer moments in Canada, either before you were in the media side of things or, or during your time in the media that that stand out for you? Well, I, I will reference the, the 2017 tournament because that was my one and only opportunity, actually, to ask Roger Federer a question, which I was able to do in press at one point there in, in 2017, his making his run to the final before losing to Sasha Zverev at the time. And in particular, that was the first time I actually got to watch him play live. And I must say, like, more so, he, he was playing great tennis. And actually, the match I saw, he beat uh, Bautista Agut in straight sets. Uh, and I must say, like, the most memorable aspect of his game, like, beyond any other player, nobody gets as many oohs and ahs as Roger Federer. <laughs> There's something about his playing style, just this magnificent shot making that uh, you don't get a crowd reaction um, to, to other players the, the same way you do to Roger. So that I'll, I'll always remember that. My first year covering the Rogers Cup, now National Bank Open, was 2008. And clearly, as someone who had been a fan first and foremost, and then a tennis blogger where you can still be a fan, you know, watching Federer during that dominant reign of his. In 2008, I was so excited to get the press pass, looking forward to talking to him after his matches, follow him having a deep run in the tournament. And then he lost in the first round to Gilles Simon and was out of there. And uh, so that's not one of my great memories, but it's one that sticks out in terms of, oh, I was so disappointed that his stay in Toronto was so short that year. I would get to talk to him a few times after that. And, and, uh, and outside of Canada, getting to ask him a question at Wimbledon when I got my credentials there a couple of years ago with you during the pandemic, virtually, that was still a really special moment. Uh, in Canada, his semifinal win in 2010 over Djokovic, 6-1, 3-6, 7-5. That was a pretty epic match between the two who were ranked two and three in the world at the time. Um, You know, I bet you we'll see him in Canada again with a racket in his hand, maybe an exhibition against Nadal after Nadal hangs up the racket. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if tennis fans did get a chance to see him one more time out of ATP competition, though, of course. It's it's certainly possible. And uh, who knows, maybe he'll make the trip out to Vancouver next year, just sort of be around the Labor Cup as a fan or just to have his presence there. Uh, that's, that's certainly possible. But what a fantastic career. We've said uh, goodbye to a few too many athletes this year, but uh, certainly going to remember Roger very fondly and we'll have one last chance to watch him, hopefully at Labor Cup. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. If we get into international competition, uh, we'll move on to the Davis Cup where Canada was uh, in Group B down in Valencia, Spain, and 
very impressive week from the squad. They're off to the quarterfinals, getting huge victories and ties over first South Korea, then a massive win over Spain. And of course, Mike, the standout victory here, I mean, we can talk about doubles play, which was huge as well, but Felix Oje Aliasim taking out the new world number one, Carlos Alcaraz in three sets, taking him out just after he had been anointed number one. And I have to say, this is for me, I think Felix's best performance of 2022, honestly. Yeah. And I got to be honest too here for a second, which is I didn't give Canada as big a chance of moving out of this group as, as maybe some would have. Yeah, uh, Felix joining at the last minute and coming in with a lackluster performance in New York. Vashik, whose game hasn't been at his, you know, usual kind of standard this year either. But the two of them worked so well together. And, you know, I want to give credit to Vashik Pospisil too, who's come in at times and been so clutch for Canada. 2019, that Davis Cup alongside Denis Shapovalov, that doesn't happen without Vashik. This one either against Korea, Felix lost his singles match. It was Vashik who won in singles. Yep. And one in doubles as well. And they needed that to, to move on. So um, credit to him. He plays his best when he's representing his country. And for Felix, of course, that win over Alcaraz, very meaningful. Alcaraz, I would imagine, still a little bit tired, let's say, from all those five-set matches in New York. Probably handi- handling the media blitz afterwards of his ascension to the world number one. Uh, but Felix still went out there and did it, even after dropping the first set. So... Big result for him. Hopefully, he can end the year with some positive results, including, of course, the Davis Cup Finals now in November, uh, where Canada finds itself. Yeah, and uh, look, this was this was highly unexpected, given if you, you go back earlier in this season when they lost uh, that tie in the Hague to the Netherlands, that um, actually they were, at that point, um, kept out of the Davis Cup Finals. There didn't seem to be a route, but actually because of the disqualification of Russia, which has been banned from the international competition for the year, Canada was the next highest ranked team waiting. And so they took that slot and they took it and run with it. And how huge was it that Felix, after a disappointing US Open, decided to confirm his attendance for, for Canada? Because without him, let's be honest, and no disrespect to the young guys, I love them, they would have had zero chance here. It's true. And and good for Felix making that decision, too. I mean, good for Canada. Good for Felix to walk away with a win that big. Yeah. Um, also really, really huge for him. Um, what else did I want to say just to wrap on the Davis Cup? Oh, yeah. My one critique, and it's not of the team or the result, it's just the format that we can't have these matches at home, that it's mm-hmm. so rare to get a home tie anymore, the way that this tournament has been structured, the way that it's basically pretty much held in, in Europe onwards for, for the, you know, the stages that count. And to me, the real appeal of Davis cup was always having your home fans. There was that electric atmosphere that we really don't get to see that type of atmosphere in the tennis world because most tournaments are held on neutral ground for most players. So it's, um, it's something that I really miss. I, I hope one day they can find a way to again, restructure the Davis cup to make it more, uh, friendly to home fans to get to see these moments as opposed to having to watch on TV. Yeah. uh, And I I think as well, we need more amplified coverage of this event. I I feel like I wasn't seeing enough shared over it. Like we need to make it a bigger deal. Like it's, you know, the best tennis countries in the world in competition. And I'll just add, as we shift over to the women's side, Felix Ojeali-Yassim still has a lot to play for as he finishes out 2022 because he's right on the edge of the race to Turin in points. So if he can get into that 
inside that top eight, um, that's a great opportunity to challenge himself against the world's very best players later in this season at the ATP finals. Uh, over to the WTA, and we had a bunch of Canadians actually in action in India at the Chennai Open. I'll start on singles and Canadian Jeannie Bouchard. Very, very positive tournament for her as she won a couple of matches and reached the quarterfinals before she lost to uh, Nadia Podoroska, uh, who's a very solid player, of course. And Jeannie struggled with the heat in that match, unfortunately. Um, said she felt like she lost half her weight in sweat. But nevertheless, this is her first uh, tournament in over a year where she's actually had a main draw victory at a WTA event. So this is like huge, huge strides. Yeah, all we had seen from her coming in was that exhibition uh, tennis tour of champions event there with, uh, oh gosh, who was there? Uh, Tommy Haas. Same yeah, query she, she also played. Van- Kennan, she also right? played Vancouver as well, but that's just a one twenty five k. So, and True. she hadn't she hadn't won there either. So there you go. So this was so positive, and the fact that you know her tournament didn't end because of anything related to the shoulder, mm-hmm. uh, that that is first and foremost the you know the the most key aspect to her participation is that the shoulder is healthy. This is great results for Jeannie, I think, given how long she was off the court, it's got to give her such a great feeling um, to persevere through that time. Uh, She's not getting any younger. She is in her late twenties. She could have called it a career. She could have said, Hey, I'm not going to spend a year rehabbing this thing. She's got that hunger. She wants to get back in the top 100. I still think that she can be uh, a real competitor on the women's tour and have some results and give Canada some added depth as well for our Billie Jean King cup team. And, uh, and knowing how hard she's worked and you and me have spoken to her before and, and seen her behind the scenes practicing, you can't help but but be happy for her for this one. Yeah, she's an easy person uh, to root for, and uh, she'll take a big jump in the rankings with this result. She was outside the the top 900 uh, before this tournament. She's leaping about 380 or so spots to 521 right now in the live rankings, so that's a big step forward. Just a couple other Canadians who were in action. Rebecca Marino also produced a good result, a couple nice wins, and she got through to the quarterfinals before losing to uh, Magda Lynette, 7-6-6-3, and I I think I'd said like certainly top 75 and maybe top 50 being achievable for Marino at this result, she's going to be up to number 80. And you look just consistently through the summer. It feels like every tournament she's playing, she's getting at least a win or two and progressing. And, and the result she had at the U S open as well, which was so key making yeah. the third round there. Yeah. And, you know, we mentioned it a couple episodes ago, wrapping up the U S open just financially to give herself that boost, uh, the ranking points, but also the financial uh, reward for all the hard work too because you don't make that money at the smaller events so to get no. that for her um, and and to move forward and have another strong result here is great uh, Gabby Dabrowski in doubles to me was remarkable because she was rejoining her old partner uh, Luisa Stefani who hadn't played since the US Open a year before after that really terrible knee injury where she had to be helped off the court it was the Brazilians first tournament back partnering with Gabby again. Boy, those two were so good summer of 2021, including their win in Canada. And uh, they just picked up right where they left off with the title. 
Yeah, look, and I, I would say they kind of dominated, to be honest. They were holding the number one seed for a reason. They didn't drop a set, though. And you look at these score lines, 6-4, 6-1 in their first match, 6-love, 6-3, 6-3-6-3 in the semifinals, and then 6-1, 6-2 over Blinkova and Zalamidze. So uh, just absolutely cruising to the title, showing you uh, just the prowess, of the prowess of this doubles team because they were one of the best doubles teams on the WTA Tour when they were playing. And, of course, we had that tragic uh, freak injury for Louisa Stefani, which was a setback. And now I, I have to think for Gabby, though she did play well with Juliana almost this season, they had some nice results. She might have to be thinking like Stefani is, is maybe my partner here going forward. Yeah. I don't see how you don't reunite. Although I believe that it was always in the plans for Gabby to team up with Juliana almost for 2022, even right. before that injury. So you never know what's going on in, you know, behind the scenes doubles is sometimes like a bit of a soap opera in terms of who's partnering with who. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'd love to see this partnership because they were at the top of the women's doubles game before that injury. And it looks like uh, that chemistry still exists. I'd love to see what they could do together in 2023. Yeah, just uh, quickly wrapping there in Shanae, uh, the 17-year-old Linda Frivertova won the WTA title, her first of her career. So she's just 17 years old. Her sister, Brenda, is 15 years old. Her sister just won um, an ITF title this week and has won something like 21 matches in a row. So, so if you're looking for up-and-coming names, Linda and Brenda, these sisters, seem to be uh, slowly but surely taking over this tour quietly. Very young impressive talents and uh ben before we do call it a, a close on this episode we've got a giveaway courtesy yep. of tennis canada this tennis ball has been sitting on my mantle here for several weeks now so <laughs> be happy to send it off to a winner and that's a signed tennis ball from emma radicanu who plays for great britain britain but was born in toronto so there's that canadian connection and uh thanks to all who participated and retweeted our episode uh from last week to enter this competition The winning name this time around is Megan Panter. Megan, congratulations. We will be in touch with you to get your address and send this ball your way. And uh, yeah, hopefully bigger things for Emma Raducanu moving forward as she continues her development as a young talent on the WTA. Yeah, and uh, she'll be in action actually this week in Seoul at the Korea Open. So uh, also in action, Jeannie Bouchard again playing after Shanae, Rebecca Marino also made the trip to Seoul. So both of them are in action this week on the WTA side. Then we have Labor Cup uh, coming up as well. Felix Ojeleseem will be representing Team World, so make sure to check that out. Yeah. Hey, hey Ben, Roger's last match, what would be more perfect? Would it be maybe a doubles match alongside Rafa Nadal? Mm-hmm. Or would it be a match against our Canadian Felix Oje Aliassime? <laughs> the two do share a birthday, so it may be kind uh, of that's, uh the match point Canada side of my brain will say will say Federer versus Felix would be even more special. At least remember, we already saw Roger and Rafa team up at the Laver Cup in doubles before. So it has happened before. I really hope they can play again. And I also know Andy Murray is dying to play with Roger Federer in doubles if he can. Who isn't? I feel like everyone we talk to and we ask that rapid fire question, who'd you like to play doubles with? Yeah. Federer's name always seems to <laughs> pop up surprisingly. Unsurprisingly. Yeah. Not not a bad choice. Well, anyway, we say so long to Roger Federer and his great career and so long from Matchpoint Canada, guys. We will talk to you next time.